back to Mark in uh, 2017. So over the last few weeks, we have seen uh, this increasing polarization around Jesus in Mark's gospel. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, is a capstone for that movement in the gospel. It's a passage in which the lines um, about who is with Jesus and who is not with Jesus are drawn more clearly than anywhere before in Mark's story. So let me read from the end of Mark 3 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. You can just listen as I read from Mark 3. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against himself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, as we always do, that you would be happy to use this word that we have just read and heard together, that we're going to talk about together, to show us the grace of Jesus more clearly. Um, That those old words that we just sang together, that you would give our jaded senses light, that that would be true. And as best we can, every one of us in here admits that to some extent our senses are jaded and we need you. So meet us, Father, those of us who feel close and those of us who feel far from you, those of us who are inside of faith and outside of faith, those of us who aren't certain why we're even here this morning. Meet every one of us and show us the grace of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if if you've lived in Illinois long enough, you might remember the winter when our former governor, Rod uh, Blagojevich, was arrested on several corruption charges. It was in uh, December of 2008. And shortly after his arrest and after he got out on bond, he started making the rounds of the TV talk shows, and he made it clear in interview after interview that he was appearing on these shows as a way of stating his innocence and as a way of trying to clear his name. 
And in early February of 2009, he ended up on The Late Show um, with David Letterman. And Letterman was classic Letterman with him. He was goofy and affable with the governor. But he was also relentless. Um, He kept asking him again and again and again, why didn't the governor just wait until the trial to have his name cleared? Why is he doing this public tour trying to clear his name? And at one point, here is what the former governor said. He said, I believe a man's reputation sums up who he is. And of course, at that time, his reputation, his name, was summed up with one word, corrupt. And he wanted to shake that if he could. I think that was a really insightful thing for him to say. It points to a powerful dynamic that is at play in our world, and that is that names are hard to shake. Just think of a couple of the names we've heard over the last few months on our national stage. Names like rapists and deplorables. Candidates Trump and Clinton use those words because they work. They work quickly and they work efficiently and they reduce and oversimplify and divide. They build and maintain broad coalitions. So we'll come back in a minute to our national life and where all of this naming leaves us in the present. But for now, let me say that, of course, the 21st century does not have a corner on that market. People have been using names for other people in order to control them, in order to dispose of them, as long as there's been language. And that truth lies at the very heart of this story from Jesus' life that we just read together. Jesus gets two names in the story that we just read. Two names. And both of them are attempts to stop him, attempts to minimize his influence. They are attempts to silence him. They come from two surprisingly different sources, but their goal is the same. Both of these groups think that Jesus represents some kind of threat, so Jesus' mother and brothers have a name for him. Out of his mind. And the scribes from Jerusalem have a name for him, too. And that name is Evil. So this story is about how Jesus responds to both of those names, and ultimately it is a story about the name that people like us choose to use for him. So Mark's story starts by telling us that Jesus went home, which, of course, doesn't refer to his old home in Nazareth, but to the home that we've seen him using over the last few weeks in Capernaum. Mark says the crowd gathered around him again so that they couldn't even eat. Now, I don't know exactly what Mark means by that image, but I do know that it means that what we have seen over and over again is playing out again here. There are lots of people around Jesus, huge crowds, many of whom want something from him. So everything appears, at least at first, to be a pretty normal mark and scene until what happens next. Mark says when his family heard where he was, they went out to seize him. Why does Jesus' family want to grab him? Well, in their words... They thought that Jesus was out of his mind. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, um, but never in a million years would I ever expect to be told that Jesus' mother and brothers, the ones who know him best, the ones who were closest to him, never would I imagine that they thought he was crazy. So we have to take this pretty seriously. Mary, Jesus' mother, 
the one who received the announcement of his birth from Gabriel himself, the one who knew the miracle of his conception more intimately than anyone on the planet, the one who raised this boy who grew in wisdom and stature far above anyone she had ever seen before. Mary, the mother of Jesus, thought he was out of his mind. Now consider the evidence that she has to go on. I mean, we've been reading Mark together for the last few months, so we know what it is that she's had to see. Here's what her boy has done. He has announced that his coming, his arrival on the scene, marks the coming of God's kingdom. He's claimed the authority to forgive sins, and then he actually forgives a man of his sins. He's told everyone that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, so he can do what he wants on the Sabbath. And this made the authorities of the day start figuring out how to try to destroy him. So there's not a whole lot of wiggle room for Mary. There's only a couple of legitimate options for her and the boys when they are faced with these things. If you don't believe or can't believe what Jesus has said, and at this point, his, his mother and his brothers don't or can't, then saying that he is out of his mind is actually a pretty sympathetic thing to say. At least it's not hostile. And then at least it's not really his fault that he is saying all these offensive and strange things. That's their label for Jesus. And what it does is make Jesus safe and comprehensible rather than challenging or troubling. And I have to say that I wonder if that's what people like us want sometimes. I wonder if that is what I want, a safe and comprehensible and explicable Jesus, rather than the one who really is. Because the one who really is threatens pretty much everything in my life. He threatens my stability. He threatens my comfort. He threatens my pet sins and desires. He threatens the inertia of my distracted, comfortable life. He threatens how I use my money and my time. And I think it's good for all of us here this morning to ask, will we settle for a safe, explicable Jesus? Or will we follow the one who really is? Now, there aren't too many folks around today who would call Jesus crazy, although I'm sure that you can find a few. But we, we have a different safe name for him, a different explicable Jesus label. And that is normally great teacher or great leader. We call him a great moral leader or an inspiring leader. And those things are true, and frankly, they are safe. And they are comfortable. But the problem is that those names don't come close to explaining all of who Jesus really was. I mean, great moral teachers do not claim to be God. And inspiring leaders don't tell anyone that they have come to forgive their sins They don't claim that they were around a creation and made everything. Is that the Jesus that we want? His family did not. They want to seize him and quiet him and take him back to Nazareth, out of the spotlight. So before we even get a chance to see how that plays out, Mark shifts the scene quickly and we find out that there is another group, a very different group than Jesus' family, who has made their own journey to little old Capernaum that day. 
Mark tells us that they were scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, that's a, a very important point. Um, it's a big development in Mark's story because what that means is that for the first time, people from the seat of power have made the journey to see Jesus. He has attracted attention from the top, and it is not good. These guys come with a name for Jesus, and honestly, church, it is one of the darkest things that you'll read in the New Testament. This whole section here is one of the darkest and hardest things you'll read in the New Testament. They say Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. That's one of the first century names given to Satan. They say that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now notice they're not denying anything about Jesus. They don't call Jesus a charlatan. They don't call him a faker. They don't call him misguided. They don't call him crazy. They don't deny that he has power, that he's doing some amazing things. They're simply suggesting that his power is evil. That he's controlled by evil rather than good. They look right at Jesus and they call him evil. They're saying that what Jesus is doing is sinister, this big evil show. Now we should think about this for a minute because the scribes are in the same place as Jesus' family. They cannot or they will not believe what Jesus is saying. And we should have missed this if Jesus was just going around teaching morality he was just going around healing people, the scribes wouldn't care. In fact, they might really like him. You know, they're deep, deep, deep into morality. It's just about their most favorite thing in the whole world. But that's not the problem. What disturbs them is that Jesus is intimately connecting all of the good things that he has been doing with all of the really troubling stuff that he has been saying. And they cannot be separated because Jesus will not allow them to be separated. He has said over and over again that he is doing the things that he is doing because of who he is. And what he's suggesting about his identity is too offensive, it's too upsetting, it cuts too close to their grip on power. He threatens them and upsets them. So they need a name that will silence him and evil is just about the strongest name they can slap on him. It is the ultimate silencer. And this this brings me back to our national life and to where all of the naming and the labeling and the carving up and the dividing that we have just witnessed and experienced as a nation leaves us. You know, our... Our president-elect has said things to and about women and about immigrants and people of other religions and about at least one disabled person that are shameful. It's a matter of public record. You can read these comments. And the things that he said are not wrong because they were said in mixed company. They're not wrong because they were said in secret. They are wrong because they were said. Now his retractions of them or modifications of them or repentance about them are for him to sort out. That's not my point here. My point is that these things were said. Things were named that should not have been named. And that leaves us somewhere as a people because there is great power in naming. That's why people do it, to create the other And the cost of those names is real, and it's all around us, 
and it is, of course, incredibly tensified because he will soon be our president. Many women and immigrants and Muslims and people of color and disabled persons are profoundly saddened and disoriented and afraid and unsure. And church, our response to this is unambiguously spelled out. Jesus says that we are called to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. So for us to love our neighbors like we love ourselves is to acknowledge first that this situation of anger and sadness and disorientation, that it is true, that it is real. We can't pretend that it isn't or explain it away or put our heads in the sand or try to tell folks that we're sure that it will get better. And then for us to love our neighbors like we love ourselves is to move towards people who are in pain in order to comfort the afflicted and mourn with those who mourn. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves is to stand up for these folks and protect them in the very same way that we would want to be protected. And I know, of course, that there are names being lobbed in the other direction as well. There is carving up that comes in the other direction. And I know that folks who supported either of the major candidates are being painted with broad brushes that are unhelpful and divisive. And church, to love our neighbors is to stop participating in any of that. Last week in the prayers of the people, Jenny Vandreo prayed that we would have vulnerable dialogue. And I have to tell you that prayer has been ringing in my mind all week. And that is my prayer for us as a church, that we would enter into vulnerable dialogue with each other and with our neighbors, that we would strive to love more deeply. So what does Jesus do? In the face of the naming, the dividing, the carving up that's about him, he tells some parables. They're the first parables in Mark's gospel. They all fit together like pieces of this beautiful puzzle What he does is ask us to imagine a kingdom that's ruled by an evil prince. And he asks us to picture that this evil prince, that his house is filled, it is just completely filled from the basement to the rafters with all of the stuff that he has acquired over the years of his reign. Now Jesus asks, imagine that and then imagine, wouldn't it be ridiculous for this evil prince to start fighting against himself? Wouldn't it be ridiculous and silly for this evil prince to run through his house and give away all the stuff he's stolen and free all of the prisoners he's captured through the years? Of course that would be ridiculous. And Jesus says further, if the evil prince is going to be defeated, he needs to be tied up. And if someone mightier than the evil prince comes and someone mightier than the evil prince ties him up, then he could have the run of the kingdom. He could change the bad laws. He could overturn the corruption. He could give away all the stuff the evil prince has stolen. And most importantly, he could free the captives of the evil prince. Right in front of his very eyes, the mighty one could unlock the doors of the dungeon and send the captives running and laughing out into the light. It's a pretty thinly veiled metaphor and a beautiful one. Jesus is telling the true story of the world and he is putting himself directly in the center of it. He is the mighty one who ties up the evil prince and plunders his house with joy like a holy thief. 
He's telling the story of this world being redeemed by a Savior who is driven by deep love. It's about captives to sin being set free and forgiven. It's about diseases being cured and oppression being eradicated. It's about homes for the homeless. It's about the end of violence in cities like ours. It's about the establishment of real justice and the establishment of real peace. It's the story we were made for, church, and it is the story that this desperately carved up and anxious and divided people desperately need. Advent begins next week, so let me put it in the words of that great carol, A Thrill of Hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That is the story that Jesus is telling. And the scribes, they understand it better than anyone else there that day. And they refuse to believe it, which is why Jesus says that incredibly powerful thing that he does about the eternal sin, the one that you can't be forgiven of. What he's doing is describing what the scribes have done. They've looked straight at Jesus. They've looked at his words and his deed together, and they have called him evil. They don't want any part in Jesus' story. They don't want to have any place in it. I think uh, N.T. Wright illustrates this moment perfectly. He says this, If you decide that the doctor who's willing to perform a life-saving surgery on you is really a sadistic madman, then you'll never give consent to the operation. And that's that moment. I think he's right. There is no hope left because they have excluded the only person who could save them. And it is precisely at this moment where Mark decides to shift the scene again. Jesus' mother and brothers have arrived, and they're calling for him. Someone says, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside, and they want to talk to you. And Jesus' response to them is incredibly shocking, particularly by first-century standard. He, he asks, who are my mother and my brothers? I don't even know who you're talking about. Now, the point of this shock, like every time Jesus says or does something shocking, is to make things stop for a second, right? To make glasses pause in front of thirsty lips, to make readers stop in mid-sentence, to have conversations halt mid-word. The point is to lead us to consider what name we will use for Jesus. And so Jesus looks at all these people who are sitting in front of them, and he says, these are my family. This is my family. These are my people. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And it's important, church, to get this right. Jesus isn't saying that these people have earned their way into his family by what they do. He is saying that what they do is evidence that they are family. They're the people who have heard his announcement of the kingdom of God and have called it what Jesus called it, very good news. They're the ones who have followed his invitation to repent and believe, and in doing that, they have now entered into the thrill of hope. They have walked headlong into the new and glorious morn. And they're changing lives, and they're changing loves, are evidence that this is true. 
So what is the name that we will use for Jesus? That is what this moment in Mark's story is all about. Out of his mind, really nice guy, great teacher, sinister. Or will we, through repentance and faith, call him our elder brother, our family? Let me pray for us. Father, give all of us in here, starting with the preacher, the eyes to see who Jesus really is and to reject any other way of naming and any other way of labeling him that will make him safe and explicable for us. Father, help us to follow the Jesus who really is, who threatens everything about us and our lives who threatens everything about this broken world around us, who brings us hope. Father, help us to follow him. Do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Father sends His Son, our Lord, to be His bright and shining Word. Come, Lord, ride out Your gleaming course and be our dawn, our light's true source. 